Welcome to Film Fight Club. I'm Glenn Falconstein from Falcon Screen, and we are joined by Sydney filmmaker, definitely, definitely still not in Sydney, Chris Evans. I don't want to go back. I don't want to go home. And freelance writer and critic, also not in Sydney, Virat Nehru. I'm going to be here for a long time, so sucks to be you guys. And we have Sean Coates from joining us again from another Bloody Movie podcast. I'm going to be here forever, so beat that. It is nice here. I would stay. So I'm here, obviously, because of Celine Dion, who I'm going to tomorrow night, and I'm very, very excited. Obviously. <laughs> obviously. But we are also here. There's also the Melbourne International Film Festival. Yeah, it's good to catch up after a week. It's been, been too long. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's been, it was fun last week. I liked that episode. That was, yeah, yeah pretty, pretty hectic. The movies will go on. Oh, I love it. So we are talking about many, many films that are screening at the Melbourne International Film Festival and some of which will be in cinemas soon, some of which you can catch on the iTunes and some of which you can catch on YouTube, including We Caught Night Shift Sesh on Midnight on Saturday, Body. Now, I'm glad I was... It's ironic that I was awake for this at that time because it is the least woke film I have ever ever seen it is a film it is a two-hour rap battle and about a self-described white dude who comes uh, endeared to the rap scene and uh, the implications this has the very politically incorrect implications this has for and uh, the ensuing dramatics can i just say as the youngest guy here i still have no idea what woke means <laughs> yeah I, 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 I struggle i think it means twitter likes you <laughs> it's the past tense of uh, uh wake so, so bodied. bodied. Okay. Uh, oh my god, guys. Uh, oh my god, Becky. This movie was amazing, right? I I had no idea what I was in for. I sadly have not caught up with the rest of Joseph Kahn's filmography, but I've been hearing about his legend as a trash auteur of the highest order, who you know, making genuine cult films for a while. And this movie paid off in that promise completely. This movie has so much energy. You know, he's really taken his background as a music video director um, and made a movie that, you know, is so wild visually, but as well as being, you know, restrained, just right for the story. Like, it uses a lot of um, the kind of effects that you'd see on Instagram filters and cheap YouTube videos to hilarious effect to bring out the, the rap battles, um, to bring out the energy of them. The rap battles themselves are hilariously written, Um I could talk about this movie forever. It crams so much storyline into two hours. It feels long, but it also feels like you've seen, you've gotten to know a lot of characters really, really well and seen their ups and downs and rises and falls. In addition to being hilarious, it actually follows through on the consequences of the characters' actions, which is incredibly refreshing in a Hollywood context. This movie isn't out to just reassure you, but wants to challenge and offend you um, the whole way through its runtime. Um, it manages to even give depth to the characters that it even seems to be putting up merely as parody characters and patronizing to early on. Um, what did the rest of the panel think? This is this is amazing, mainly because like this was not even on my radar. So shout out to Will Wong for actually, you know, alerting me that this was actually a thing that I should be checking out. And 11.30 at Acme with select, you know, Sydney film files. Like I could actually check out how many people from Sydney had made the trip. And this was like... We were the crew. We were like, you know, in the hood, essentially. But this was, this was, this is such a okay. This is such a politically charged movie, and in a good way. And let's let's compare this to like Black Klansman. Okay, there are a lot of politically charged movies coming out, but Body of you know 
this is not the one movie I would think about, but I'm saying this is a movie that actually knows and takes no prisoners in actually going to places that other movies have not gone. It's really, really self-aware in what it's doing. Perfect midnight viewing for anyone. This movie uh, criticizes people across all sides of the political debate, but does so in a way that doesn't just feel like a cynical, hey, all sides are bad kind of thing. I felt like there was definitely a point of view about what is the right way to live in this film that none of these characters are able to stay on that track. It's a movie about uh, people coming to realize that they're terrible people and charging for it anyway. So I think this is going to limit potentially its mainstream success because compared to most of what the reassuring movies to make us feel good about ourselves that Hollywood puts out, this is, you know, feels genuinely dangerous. Um, it is a very sophisticated film. Uh, I'll say two, only uh, two things to it. Number one is that it has that rare quality to not stop and let the jokes, and especially the subtle jokes, sink in. Yeah. There's a few great corkers, which you know, you know, I certainly don't think I got every single joke, but no, they no. made, they, they, they used them to great effect. How amazing was the main actor, the rapper? Oh, Don Hall Gleason. He, he looks exactly like Don Hall Gleason, and he, he is hysterical. The comic timing in this movie is just perfect. I think his name is Callum something. Either Callum Long or Callum Worthy. But he was definitely worthy for the role. The last thing I'll say about this film is that, and this is a recommendation as much as a warning, if you watch this on YouTube, you may be inclined to skip away after a few minutes, as I was very confused in the first few when the characters were so plainly exaggerated and over the top. I feel they found the grounding as they got into the film. So stay past the first 10 minutes and you will enjoy this. It's super broad at the opening and all the characters are caricatures, but... It still had an energy that pulled me through that. And as it goes on, as Glenn says, even though the whole movie is in this very broad satirical register, it does acquire a depth that will surprise you. It's the most well-earned movie that I've seen. It like it earns every laugh, it earns every joke, and it earns the actual narrative. Like you actually know yeah. the character goes through this kind of progression, and it's it's refreshing. It's I felt really woke after this. <laughs> So I was certainly woke at one forty-five in the yes, morning, yes. and that was bodied. It's on. It's going to be on YouTube. Watch it. The next thing we're talking about is when we. Oh, the others caught this afternoon. Fugue. Fugue. Yeah, it, it really feuds my mind together. Yeah, look, it's a movie from the director of The Lure, and it seems to be teasing with these flashbacks that happen throughout, as well as the title sequence, that it's going to go in a kind of genre direction. But no, it's basically a gender swapped. Um, uh, remake of Paris, Texas without a as much of interest, you know, going on. We've, it's just it's a woman comes out of the wilderness and um, you know, uh, you know, gr- reconnects with her family a little bit and realizes what's happened and after ha- you know, losing her memory early on, have, having the fugue of the title. Um, yeah, anything to add? Uh, like the premise was way more interesting than the actual execution of the film. And and the film in the initial stages teases out that something actually distressing has happened except when the reveal actually comes about the reveal is so plain so simple and the movie doesn't consistently stay with the one tone like in the middle of the third act of the movie it completely changes to become a completely different kind of movie anyway and i'm like hang on a second what this is now a completely different movie that i'm watching and i wasn't really prepared for that so i was very disappointed i think today was just a bad day for movies and the next one we are talking about is Acute Misfortune, which Sean caught. 
Yeah, I was um, uh, very lucky to go to a press screening of this, which I was very surprised when that email showed up. And it was extremely intimidating being there with a bunch of uh, seasoned critics and the filmmakers at the screening as well. Also, uh, one of my film lecturers, uh, Dr. Eloise Ross, who also writes for Senses of Cinema, was there. And it was very awkward. It was kind of like, a, she kind of gave me this kind of look, like, what the hell are you doing here? Um, but the film itself, um, it's one of the films in the, prim- in the premiere fund here at MIFF. And it's uh, kind of the, adapted from the biography of the, written by Eric Jensen about the life of uh, Archibald winning artist uh, Adam Cullen and uh, in, in this film uh, what's his name uh, Daniel Henschel plays uh, Cullen and uh, Toby Wallace plays Jensen um, and it's kind of just goes through the tumultuous relationship that they had of um, kind of, it's kind of a weird meta narrative because it's about uh, uh, Eric writing the biography of um, David um, what Daniel oh, God, that's the actor sorry of Adam um, I found this pretty good um, and Henschel is fantastic as well. Like, he's back in Australia after he was on uh, The Turn, Washington Spies, and also small roles in Ghost in the Shell and Okja. Um, he's definitely the most interesting character, but because, I guess, because Jensen has also uh, co-wrote the screenplay to this film as well, he's kind of the audience surrogate, and it's kind of like kind of like what the, not, like the, what the biography was. And in that respect, uh, he, in this movie anyway, he's not really that much of an interesting character, and you see more of his life than you do actually um, of Cullen's life, which... I thought it was a bit of a missed opportunity as well, but the most fascinating part of this film is just the relationship that those two had as well. This, the film probably chose, because it's from a first-time director as well, uh, Thomas M. Wright, who's mainly an Australian actor. He was one of the uh, Balibo Five in uh, Robert Connolly's Balibo. Connolly is also an executive producer of this film as well. And I had more to say, but I can't remember what I was going to say. But it, it's, it's definitely worth a watch. It's a solid biopic, and uh, yeah, go check it out. Support Australian films. Wonderful, that is a cute misfortune. Thanks for the first Australian film we've talked about this week. The next film we're talking about, well, Chris, is Full Moon in Paris. Yeah, uh, Verat, sorry, with me as well. This movie is, um, it's the, embarrassingly, it's the first Eric Romare film I've seen. I was able to see it as part of one of the retrospective films at MIFF. Um, it's very slight, I think, uh, but I've, I think there's a great elegance in the way that he uses characters and uses the frame. His films are so kind of, I think, at least from what I can see here, they're so kind of low-key in the way that they address simmering tensions in relationships. Um, But I I found the lightness of it really enjoyable. Look, uh, similar with Chris, actually, it's my first Eric Romero film as well. It was really good to check it out. And I was really impressed by the very interesting staging of how Romain manages staging and blocking in the characters. And uh, the actual characters are three main characters that function in the movie, and all three of them get very well-defined kind of quirks and personalities. And so I was very... Like, I, I could see them. I could see them as real people, especially the best friend character played. <laughs> yeah. And he was, like, the classic, like, uh, you know... Uh, I'm allowed to say the word, but fuck boy of, of this film. So you know, so, but but also the, the, actor, the actor playing him was absolutely brilliant. Yeah. so funny. And it's really weird because he was such an unlikable, unsympathetic, and completely pathetic character. But you and you take your eyes off him. Yeah, and yet, yet, like his actual machinations. Like one of the lines would you mention, and one of my favorite things that I laughed out loud when I heard this was like, "You don't see woman." You know, you don't see a woman. You see woman. As I see the eternal feminine when you look at me or something like that. It's a very sophisticated comedy. And I think, it, you know, if you get into the right mindset for it, it's very funny. 
It's a very French film. <laughs> but it's, it's so French. <laughs> and the next one we are talking about is not a very French film at all. It is Thoroughbreds, starring Anton Yelchin, Olivia Cook from Ready Player One, and the best thing about this film and several other films you saw recently in Surely Years to Come and Your Taylor Joy. It is about two young women who uh, come from very wealthy families and it is a it is trying to be satirical and it's about the main characters Annie Taylor Joy's relationship with her stepfather and there's its relationship with a um, now ex high school drug dealer played by Anton Yelchin I think what I think is his final film and cooking up a plot regarding one of their parents who they are not at all endeared to um as good as Anton Yelchin is and he has made many has many good performances Anya Taylor-Joy, a few years from now, I believe, will be one of the biggest stars in Hollywood. She was absolutely superb in The Witch and in Morgan, a very underrated sci-fi. This is not a very interesting film as such. It is not a particularly innovative film, uh, similar to Wildlife. I would say it doesn't really do anything new. I think the final set piece is done for dramatic effect, even if it doesn't really follow through in the internal logic of the film. But purely for Taylor-Joy's performance... I would recommend it because I think this is a promise of what we will see from this very talented actress in years to come when she's given the scope and breath to um, some interesting things. And speaking of usually very famous actresses and actresses start in genre fair, um, she is sticking with a lot of interesting indie fair. So certainly um, I'm sure in some years she will have a big franchise, but for now I'm glad she is trying very experimental work. Uh, the main conceit of this movie is that it's talking about... It's basically a movie about friendship and bonding. But the conceit is that it's built up like a suspense thriller with the two main protagonists being sociopathic, essentially. And we're now seeing a lot of those kind of movies where you have sociopathic teens who just have no empathy, discovering that they actually are empathetic and they actually can have feelings. A lot of that conceit's playing out. Tragedy Girls last year, we have End of the effing world uh, also on Netflix the whole season so like that seems to be a recurring theme Ingrid Goes West which is big on social media and how that's developing sociopathy in teens so basically everyone wants to hate on the young people because you know we can't have feelings or whatever so but it's basically at the same time this movie the sound design and the actual staging of this made the actual narrative way more interesting than the actual narrative itself. Like, the movie in itself, the setup is pretty boring, and it doesn't really go anywhere, but the way the sound design is set up and the suspense scenes are blocked, you actually feel like, oh my god, something's going to happen, except nothing does. So I was a bit cheated on that. Um, in terms of the thema- last thing I'll say, in terms of the thematic of this film, there are a few al- analogies you can draw to, I think, a much better film that was made n- a number of years ago called Harold and Maud. Um, aesthetically, there... A number there- of years ago, indeed. <laughs> yes. Um... Aesthetically, they're entirely different, but I think if you look at both, I don't think a film like Harold and Maud would be made today. I think if someone tried to pitch something like Harold and Maud, something a little more akin to this would be made. That is not a recommendation for people who are fans of Harold and Maud, but certainly for those who enjoy very quirky cinema and who are fans of Taylor Joy, that will undoubtedly be in cinema soon. The next thing we're talking about is one Chris, sorry, Veron and I saw at the City Film Festival, which has also landed here, which is Piercing. Piercing, um, I have a written review on Movie Babble for this one, so if you want more detailed thoughts about this, but I really, really enjoyed it. Um, speaking, we talked last week about uh, Mia Wasikowska, and uh, in this one, like, it, 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 I didn't have a problem with it in Damsel, but in this one, uh, her accent is very hit or miss. Like, it's, sometimes it's her native Australian accent, sometimes it's a weird American accent, sometimes a strange combination of both, which I was a bit annoyed with at first, but then it kind of adds to the, this kind of mysterious nature of her character, which, I, like, after some thought, I really loved. And you should check out Sean's reviews, they're great. 
I have I haven't checked them out, but I will. Um, yeah, I definitely agree with you about about her accent in this movie. I th- I, it worked for this character, whereas when in the the Old West in Damsel, I just thought, what is this Australian American person doing here? Um, but yeah, piercing was really interesting. I think um, the direction is not as strong as the obvious idols that this movie is paying tribute to, like Brian De Palma and Dario Argento. Um, there's some great music from old Italian giallo films, like like Argento's playing throughout this film, um, which is nice to hear. But even if it's not quite on that level, it still pulls out some really interesting visuals, you know, blood red um, sets, you know, big apartments with people pulling on slick black gloves and then torturing each other. Um, it's adapted by from a book by Ryo Murakami. And if you've seen Audition, some of the beats, which is also adapted from one of his books, um, some of the beats of this movie will be a little bit familiar. Um, I thought at first I really wasn't into it with the beginning. I felt like the aestheticization went a step too far. But as it went on, I really got interested by the psychological games that the two characters the two main characters play it's a very limited movie about two people in in one room essentially um and i thought it it goes it feels like a really crazy film and that's what what makes it good you know when um it's about people's repressed desires and fantasies and the way that they're visualized i thought you know it's it's over the top but feels just right for this kind of midnight movie fair that you're watching i will also say this is one of the best sequences of 2018 that i've seen in a film so far um it's it's all kind of... How would you explain it? It's Is this the, the middle of the movie? Uh, it's the scene where he's in the hotel room and he's executing his murder plan yeah. all with, like, kind of mime. And it's, uh, uh, it's yeah, fantastic. Yeah. It's all done with sound design. It's per- I loved it. Yeah, so it, sh- it definitely shows that suggestion is sometimes more powerful than graphic imagery. Certainly a better film than Damsel. And the next film we are talking about is The Island, Island of the Hungry, Hungry Ghosts. Um, yeah, look, um, this is a documentary about asylum seekers on Christmas Island. The main character is a counselor to asylum seekers, and the documentary maker cuts between three different stories, essentially. Um, one is, you know, the actual counseling of asylum seekers and hearing their absolutely horrific stories. Um, the second is people on the island trying to help, uh, crabs make their annual migration free of obstruction and the third part is talking about the history of the the first people to live on christmas island and the the chinese malay people who believe that their spirits still are around on the island the other two stories are obvious analogies for the plight of asylum seekers informing the main bulk of the film and i think it's way too broad um overly spelt out and on top of that the movie is straining for some kind of spiritual uplift with um i think overly aestheticized um sequences all throughout so the whole movie just felt like it was trying too hard and it's one that it it uses what is a valid method of documentary filmmaking which is obviously staging some sequences and conversations but you could just hear the voice of the director in these conversations straining to make the point that was already incredibly obvious through the broad metaphors that are being shoved down your throat so i felt like this movie is a very weak film on a very important subject. Thank you, Chris. Um, the next film we are talking about is one I caught at the City Film Festival. It is the film that I struggled with the most out of every single one I saw to come up with a view. I think I have since formed a view, and I still struggle with elements of it, and that is The Miseducation of Cameron Post. Yeah, so I saw this up in Sydney with, um, with uh, Glenn too. Um, I, I, there was a lot of hype around this film. Uh, I didn't quite live up to it, though. I think Chloe Grace Moritz is really good. Uh, Jennifer Earle, or L, however you pronounce it. Jennifer Earle, from Elizabeth, Elizabeth Bennett. Oh, I, I don't know who that is. <laughs> 
So she was in the Pride and Prejudice miniseries that made her start in the BBC one with Colin Firth in the nineties. Okay. You've just okay. killed a lot of Jane Austen book club fans. Plenty of time to watch it. It's it's it's, yeah. so, it's so wonderful. She, she was she was decent in this. I feel. Yeah. But uh, and I think you mentioned this in your initial review on this show that um uh, the 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 individual characters themselves aren't that interesting, but the group interactions that they have and uh, are especially like is where this film really shines. And uh, I feel like the most interesting character is uh, John Gallagher Jr.'s character, and like he should have been probably used a little bit more or like used better in the narrative. I thought. Yeah, I just saw it in myth here because of the obviously the hype. And also, Desiree Carvin's appropriate behavior was a huge breakout hit in Sydney when it premiered. So, like, everyone... I think in Australia, she's way more popular than, I think, uh, anywhere else in the world. And I think people know about her specifically because of that kind of appropriate behavior breakout. So, I think everyone's looking forward to Miss Education. And... I don't think the film lands. It's it's difficult in tone, juggling the tone from funny to ironic to that tragic, bleak third act and that twist. I was like, oh my god, this just became a very different movie, and I didn't wasn't sure whether that landed. But at the same time, Chloe Grace Moretz, I give her huge kudos because I wasn't sure she could actually pull off this kind of very complex, very restrained, very understated kind of portrayal, and she does a very good job in actually managing a lot of those subtle nuances because a lot of that emotion has to be repressed and she has to play it straight-faced. So keeping that deadpan face and still expressing through other mediums was very interesting. I think it's a very big film in terms of growing as an actor for her. Um, Also, just to the people who um, marketed this film, uh, please don't make the final shot of the film the most publicised image of the film. Just don't. Please stop that. This happens with Mission Impossible 6 as well, which is very frustrating. Or another movie that played at MIF, um, if you don't know, it was the opening night film, and I won't say any further, also uses the final the final shot of the film as the, as the poster. I think that's less problematic, but still um, it is incredibly frustrating when films do that in the promotional material. Um, certainly Terminator Genesis is the infamous example. The next film uh, we want to talk about is one I'm, so, I'm sorry I missed because I was at the lovely Irish Celtic show at the Palms, but this is a Chinese thriller, Ash is the Purest White. Well, describing it as a thriller is probably overstating it because this film goes for um, a very kind of slower-paced approach. It's a character study of a gangster's wife, and it's set over about seven or eight... uh, Actually, even longer. It's set over quite a a long period of time. Um, I think this film has its ups and downs. I think the the first half really lays the foundation to get you invested in the characters and and their story. And the... Sorry, the first third. The second third which is after a major twist happens, um, which is brought about through an incredibly choreographed action sequence. Um, the second third goes for, as Will Wong described it, a very kind of hypnotic feel um, which about representing this character's search and her alienation and um, set against the background of the changing economic si- um, circumstances throughout China um, that I thought was absolutely fantastic. But when it follows through on, I guess, the um, promise that the first act um, has set up and reunites a bunch of the characters we've been introduced to at the beginning, I felt like it stumbled a little bit. But there's some really moving scenes along the way. I think it goes into quite a bit of depth into the main character. So yeah, this film was directed by Jie Jianke, and and he's usually interested in the kind of doing social commentary in the Chinese mainland China versus development over the years. And that's been his filmography. And I think, again, he does that in this film but in a very interesting template. Uh, and often in the gangster genre, you get to see the main focus to be on the gangster. But here it's very interesting that you get to see the actual main characters are not the gangster, but 
his main partner, and actually the people that surround him, which is very interesting. You get a sense of the community and real sense of family and how they develop over the years. Yeah. So you get to see an actual progression of life. Yeah. It's a very interesting way to not just work out how Chinese development and their attitudes have changed in the past 20 25 years towards technology modernity so it's a, it's a very it's a very interesting kind of film that way where it's talking about social development into that gangster genre it has the best use of the song ymca that you'll ever see as well as great use of the main theme from john Woo's the killer um as always Kai has a really precise and beautiful visual style a very elegant and amazing cinematography that brings back I think the feeling of Sergio Leone westerns and old Hollywood epics. Uh, this film also had my very favorite interaction sequence out of any films I've seen, which is the one interaction that they have in the hotel room. The way that that interaction is shot and act- it's, it's, I was just in love with that scene. Yeah, it's an amazing sequence. The next film we are talking about is one of two Polish films uh, I caught on Friday night. We've all seen this one. This is Cold War. It is a black and white film, one of the men playing at the festival, regarding uh, several periods during Cold War. Um, I will say, yes, of course. Uh, I'll say, I'm going to say two things about this film. Um, what I said uh, in the previous episode regarding On Chesil Beach frustrated me in that it predominantly takes place over one early period and then jumps very quickly between later periods, which was very disjointed. The other I felt it was an unnecessarily muted film. There was only one scene that particularly stood out for me, I particularly enjoyed it. It was the most upbeat one where the characters are dancing to Rock Around the Clock, uh, which I thought was excellent. Otherwise, um, I didn't find this... I found this film greatly wanting and not especially or at all involving. Um, well, I caught this up in Sydney as well. Um, previous guest of both your show and my show, Another Bloody Movie podcast, Adele Drover convinced me to see this one while I was up in Sydney. And I was well and truly in festival fatigue when that happened. So I remember really, really loving it, but I'm seeing it again at now during, the, during this festival. So I will get back to you more once I'm seeing it again. It's, it's my favourite well-shot film of the festival circuit. I think it's the most gorgeously shot film, also in 4.3, so there's something to that. But also, Julia Nikolic, it's a breakout star. She's going to be doing amazing things, and please have a look at her. She has, like, it's also, like, very arrestingly economically, it's not that long a film. It's only about 80-odd minutes, and how much it packs in in that runtime, it's amazing. It's a beautifully film sh- shot film. Like, just for the cinematography, see it. If you've seen Ida from Pavel Pavlovkovsky, the director, then it's a very similar visual style. I'm um, leaving a lot of space above the characters, um, but just incredible compositions in really beautiful, low contrast black and white. Um, I think it's a movie that shows you how a relationship develops through the gaps in the relationship. Um, and it, it's in some way, it can feel quite slight, but if you fill in those gaps yourself, which I think the film is inviting you to do, there's actually quite a bit of depth there. I also love the dynamic that any time they're, they're, they're apart, you want them to be together, but then whenever they're together, they're like kind of destructive in each other's lives, and I found that a really, really interesting dynamic in the film. So that was cold. Well, the next one we're talking about is uh, probably my second favourite of the City Film Festival, which is hit here, Leave No Trace, the new Ben Foster film, uh, with Deborah Granick, who is a guest at the festival and starring, I think, another up-and-comer who we will see many things in years to come. Sean, what did we think of Leave No Trace? I didn't like it as much as you guys. I think as like like kind of what I said with climax. There's a weird comparison to make, but I think this is a really technically masterful film. Like everything about it, the way that it's shot, the production design. My God, it just looks fan- it's fantastic. Um, as you said, Thomas and McKenzie breakout performance from her. Ben Foster, quite understated and quite subtle in this film as well. Fantastic. I just for some reason 
I couldn't really connect with these characters, and in that way, I was kind of a little uninterested with the film. I didn't really care about, like, the... I guess I didn't really connect with these characters until, like, the incredible final scenes of this film. Uh, this is the film, uh, Leave No Trace. I, I missed it at, at Sydney, and Chris and, and Glenn both suggested that you have to watch it. What the hell are you doing with your life? You don't go see this film. So I put this, you know, pencil it in, one of the first picks at Maeve when it played, and I was... Okay, this is a very kind film, and let me expand on that. Like, this is something that I think I don't we, we acknowledge enough. Films are kind, need to be kind to their characters. It's a kind because it allows the characters to actually go through what they need to go through without judging them. It's not judgmental of their choices. And in that thing, it talks about mental health in a way that you don't see mainstream cinema talk about mental health. It's a very kind film and lets the characters breathe. On the note of we have to be kind to our characters, let's not forget that we opened this episode by championing the hell out of Bodied. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was interesting what you're saying, because like, no one's really villainized or demonized in this movie, but maybe that's why I didn't really find it that interesting. There isn't really any conflict in this film, and maybe that's what I just couldn't really... That's why, maybe why I wasn't as interested. I've said it before, I found it remarkable the two best films I saw at the Sydney Film Festival, in my view, were ones about a person, a veteran suffering extreme PTSD who takes on the care of a younger woman, in this case, the character's daughter, uh, Ben Foster. We've seen some incredible performances from him, and I think this is my favourite from he, he, of his, so I did appreciate Leave No Trace. That will be in cinemas soon. Uh, the next film we are talking about, we'll be talking about more briefly on our podcast is Mug which is the Polish film which appended it was my first film I saw at MIFF uh, I know Virat saw this at the City Film Festival it is about a man who has a face transplant and social satire that this ensues in his town and what frustrated me about this was the metaphors there have to be metaphors in all movies now and this had the metaphor of a giant Jesus statue which he was building which caused it was present during his injury and the imagery of how he was injured was quite powerful but having said that uh, a little too heavy on the yes we know oh we see what you did there moments well this film is good for the lols i would say you know it's it's not going for any kind of amazing kind of deep heavy-handed stuff but it's really funny the opening scene is one of my favorites from the festival circuit which is just a very good satire about consumerism so yeah it's okay we have to run. And Sean, I just want to thank you so much for joining us on the show. You will be joining us on the podcast shortly. And you can see Sean's stuff on Movie Babble and another Bloody Movie podcast. And thank you for joining us for our special Myth coverage. No worries. Absolutely, absolute pleasure. Big fan of the show. Happy to be on. It's been a lot of fun. This has been Glenn Fowlingson, Chris Evans, and Virat Nehru from Melbourne. Download the podcast for a few more movies. Yes. Don't you just love having movie reviews shoveled down your throat? Yes, like we yes, love you- shoveling movies into our eyes. Ah, Myth! <laughs> Welcome to the Film Fight Club podcast. We are back onto it, and we're just going straight, straight into it. Oh, we are talking Full Moon in Paris. We've spoken about that one, Glenn. Oh, Get with dear. the program. Oh dear, what have it's I done? It's only available in every single theater you know, that we've been going to every day. Of course. So we are talking about, oh, Glenn, Glenn, Glenn. Starting off with a bag, the podcast. We are talking about Diamantino. Diamantino. Diamantino is a movie about a Portuguese soccer player who gets involved in some kind of weird Saturday morning cartoon contraption um, involving conspiracies to get, make him the face of the Portuguese version of Brexit and also clone him and also have a government agent who is a beautiful woman disguising herself as a male <laughs> refugee. Uh, to, uh, you lie. You lie, sir. No, no. This is, yeah, this is actually what it's about. The mo- it's, plot-wise, it's just absolutely crazy. But 
as Virat pointed out, it's absolutely not crazy enough given how it starts. It, it, uh, what I'm describing probably sounds a little bit, you know, out there, but it's uh, it, ultimately the movie's going in so many weird directions that it feels a little bit wayward to me and not co- totally consistent enough, especially not to pay off the love story angle that it ultimately ends up going in. You know, it's, it's hard for, for that to resonate on any level beyond just thinking the whole thing is kind of a weird, goofy joke when you've taken it in so many wacky directions. I still believe Chris just made this plot up. But it's still, you know, look, it's interesting to... It's, I got some enjoyment out of it because it's like, all right, what's going to happen next? Like, honestly, there are times you really do feel that they're making other plot as they go along. Okay, because the, the first image that you see in this film is Diamantino on the soccer field, and he goes inside his head, and basically, instead of seeing other soccer players, he sees giant, fluffy puppies. I'm not making this up. He's playing soccer with giant, fluffy puppies. Sean, I think they're just trolling us now. Listen, are you sure you guys didn't fall asleep in the cinema and dream this? Because this, this sounds way, like, even out there for myth. Look, I mean, I forgot to mention some other aspects of this. The reason that people want to clone Diamantino, um, sorry, the reason that the woman disguised as a refugee, who's also been in a lesbian relationship with another um, government agent, who, which ends up being challenged by the time that she spends with Diamantino, um, is because his evil twin sisters have been uh, fun- moving beloved soccer player Diamantino's funds out uh, to offshore Panama accounts, and the nefarious reason for this is because of some kind of fascist conspiracy to make Portugal great again. Um, I, I mean, look, it's just breathless with the ridiculous plot elements coming at you. And Diamantino is is kind of a Derek Zoolander type character, like a beautiful idiot, and where a lot of the movie is about you know comedy about how he is just completely brainless. And um, it actually, I think Zoolander is probably now that I think about it, is probably the model for this movie. It's about an idiot who's embroiled in this huge conspiracy by a, a manipulator without him realizing it because he's the perfect person to you know. Uh, manipulate the public because they already love him it, it's alright merman merman he, he seriously even does blue steel at one point when he does a <laughs> selfie uh, but honestly there, there's some really interesting stuff about you know satirizing our star culture especially with soccer stars and stuff with how Diamantino is the extent that he's full of himself like he sleeps with a blanket which has a face of himself yeah. he basically you know uh, likes to drink bongo juice and like whatever and he, and he basically only is always shirtless and has Calvin Klein briefs. So, like, you know... Oh, I met that girl. <laughs> so, like, like you imagine that and someone who's there, but to the extent that he's actually not in touch with the world. Like, he admits that he doesn't understand the politics of the world because he's only ever played soccer throughout his life. So there's actually some really interesting stuff about how soccer stars are detached and, like, how sports cultures build up these people who actually are not in touch with the world. So there's some really good stuff about that. Yeah, there's a running joke through the movie of all the, in order to um, explain the reason why we need Diamantino. People always refer to Diamantino's genius uh, when they're talking about his ability on the soccer field. When you know, when you see the character, you know the word genius is the last thing that should ever be applied to this guy. Oh wow! Okay, so so the nefarious plot is basically the Portuguese government wants to clone Diamantino's genius and make an army of Diamantinos <laughs> to make Portugal great again. Yes. <laughs> So, so, so basically, someone saw Ronaldo was like, "How can we take the piss out of this guy?" Yeah, pretty and much. pretty much, 
Yeah. For all the soccer fans out why, there. Why wouldn't you put them all on a soccer team, though? That's what I'm wondering. That, that's actually the idea. They're going to use the soccer team in order to create, to stoke Portuguese nationalism. <laughs> oh, dear. Because, you know, eventually Portugal is going to win the World Cup with a team of Diamantinos and then force that to go out of the EU. Not after that performance in the last World Cup. I haven't even mentioned the subplot about Diamantino growing breasts. <laughs> <laughs> I, I need to this is just a curiosity for me now I have to see this it's, it's like it, it's, it can't be boring it just it just kind of like runs out of steam because I think it takes a really deft hand to sustain this kind of stream of insanity and I think the movie doesn't quite have that the gender fluidity actually is a bit problematic because the way it handles uh, same-sex relationships yeah, and that kind of transsexual relationships is a very insensitive and it just gets a bit on the nose and I don't think it really knows what it's doing. But when it actually tries to be a satire on star culture or politics or Brexit or whatever, it's much firmer ground there. Okay, so the Cristiano Ronaldo biopic is in cinemas hopefully soon. Actually, because he also has like stud earrings in his ears and he has the same Cristiano Ronaldo hairstyle, he actually does look like Ronaldo quite a bit. Does he, want to say, does he have a really stupid goal celebration too, like Ronaldo? Uh, like, yeah, he has the same kind of shirt, taking off the shirt and going like, ah, yeah, celebration. He's, he's totally, Ren- imagine Zoolander with Ronaldo. That's, that really is, I think, the idea behind this film. Okay, for all the classics, he is a hero and good on him for all the excellent goals he scored during the cup. This film is very much an own goal. Ooh. And the next film, the last two films you're talking about is, I'm going to mispronounce this one too, Carpaneum? Carpaneum? Kifarinam or whatever, whatever, one of of those ones. It's directed by Nadine Labaki, who's an actor-director. And it's it's really interesting because there's a divided critical opinion about this. And it's exploring the life in the slums of Lebanon and the refugee crisis over there through the eyes of basically majority child actors. It's really interesting. So the premise of this film is that a young child uh, by the name of Zayn is suing his own parents for giving birth to him. And uh, and this may seem like, you know, quite far-fetched in broad strokes, but the film is actually really interesting, mainly because of its use of child actors. Uh, Zayn, uh, played by real-life child actor Zayn al-Rafia, gives an amazing performance because he's actually the main protagonist of this film and yet you can see in his eyes how he depicts pain of living through without papers without identification in a world full of refugees especially in Lebanon and Middle East so it's actually a much more nuanced and sort of more emotionally charged film than it becomes from its very ridiculous premise and the last ones we're covering it's another football film which this one is Infinite Football yeah, Infinite Football is um, from... Oh, God, I, I'm going to have to Google his, his pronunciation now. Cornelio... Um, oh, God. All right, he directed The Treasure and Police Objective. So um, you film buffs out there. Wait, here we go. It's... Drumroll. Cornelio Porimboyu? Oh, God. Anyone, any Romanian people here or people who know how to pronounce Romanian words are just cringing right now, I can tell. Um, Cornelio Porimboy. There we go. Boy. Okay, so this is, uh, unlike um, the rest of the films from him that I'm familiar with, this is a documentary, but it's covering a lot of the similar themes that you see in his other films about the, um, the nature of, um, of communism and uh, you know, the way that it's impacted on the Romanian national character um, and the, the wounds are still there. Um, but this is a documentary following a friend of... Porimboy? 
Purim Beer. Purim Beer, yeah. It's a documentary where he films his friend who had a bad injury when he was playing soccer decades ago, um, which met, uh, as a teenager, which meant that he was never really able to play again, but maintained his interest in the game. And he's now developed a theory of how... Um, football should be recreated new rules that could be either proposed to fifa or in his eyes the more likely outcome to create a alternative game a challenger rival game to the beautiful game and uh his idea is that the game should be made more beautiful the unspoken idea is that because there's something wrong with the game because it led to his injury so he's tried to create a version of football that has less physical competition involved and uh, less chances for injury to go wrong. Um, all I see in football now is uh, some pretty amazing theatrics, which have no relation at all to anything that happens on the pitch. Right. He says it's a game that you know players wouldn't have to retire as late, and he could see old people being able to play it. He, he's got a really uti- um, a really utopian idea, which Amparambu calls it at one point. He says this is this is some kind of utopia that you're trying to create. He maintain. Um, he maintains that this is possible but the problem is you can see that this guy has gotten so invested in his idea without ever taking a step back that what initially starts as a fairly um, interesting idea of let's change a few rules and see where that takes us has gotten bogged down in bureaucracy like the communist regime I guess you could say and uh, you know what was the Romanian film that was at the City Film Festival last year? The one about the teacher? Graduation, yeah, which is made by an associate of this director. Okay. Yeah, um, their, their films cover, I think, pr- quite similar territory. But there's a lot of comedy in seeing how the um, this guy has gotten so lost in this impossible dream and the, the game's gotten ridiculous and convoluted, um, but he's unable to accept that he might be on the wrong path but and he becomes an object of pity for a while but as the film especially when you see his office job and how he in his day-to-day life is just bogged down in ridiculous bureaucracy that's related to addressing the failings of communism still that haven't been worked out 30 years later um but uh it um it's very slow paced it's basically and a, a very strange and cold film you know bleak color palettes long conversations between the director and his friend um it's an interesting one because in in, as a character study and it reveals depths to this guy that you don't think are going to be there when at first you think this movie is just mocking him um it's it's a strange movie about impossible dreams it's almost like a, a good companion piece to another movie doing the festival circuit man who killed don quixote and uh, the last very briefly, we discussed last week, but Asako 1 and 2? Yeah, I, I crammed my thoughts on that movie so quickly that I thought I should take a little bit of extra time to explain it because the concept is so interesting. It's um, a similar concept to, you know, the Vertigo setup. Um, it's a woman falling in love with a man who then vanishes and then falling in love with a person who looks identical but claims to be a different person um, about two and a half years down the line no sorry six months down the line and the movie condenses a huge amount of time um in covering these two relationships into two hours meaning it's constantly fast-paced but it also builds up a believable relationship i i think um a lot of romance movies skimp on the depth and don't sell you on the love between the characters um but this movie is really looking at whether love is about um the spark 
or whether it's about the amount of time you spend with a person. And I think it, it follows through on this kind of magical realist idea of there being two people that look exactly the same in really interesting ways. Um, I just wanted to give more love to this movie because it's really one of the strongest films of the year. And um, hopefully this gets this little extra time on Asuka 1 and 2 gets anyone who might be on the fence interested in it. I've enjoyed Myth, guys. Thanks for this. I've enjoyed it too. And um, as the resident Melbourne person, I mean, we've talked, I think, briefly on a previous episode, but also these last couple about the Melbourne International Film Festival and how it is distinct from Sydney. You've experienced both in the uh, past year of Unshorn. Yeah, um, I only saw a hand because <coughs> I've only living in Melbourne for a couple of years because I'm here for university now. I'm originally from, uh, from country Victoria. And uh, so I've, I've experienced both festivals now. And there's, yeah, there's really good atmosphere at, this, at, at, um, at both festivals. And uh, to what Chris alluded to, I can't remember if it was this week or last week, how he said um, Sydney Film Festival has a much older audience and like, um, yeah, MIF has a much younger one. And I guess may, me being a t- technically young person, I kinda, I, I'm more comfortable here as well. And also... Uh, yeah, Melbourne. I'm, I'm really adapted well to Melbourne, and I think do think we've got a good film culture here, which is annoying. Seeing Sydney gets a lot of the kind of you know film premieres and like all this kind of you know big stuff. I think Sydney, um, Melbourne has a more ingrained, at least Melbourne International Film Festival has more ingrained cinephilia culture and ancillary events to the festival, which encourage people to socialise and engage more outside, just in the theatres. I think that's changing in Sydney. I think this year the talks in Sydney were particularly strong, but certainly I've seen over the course of successive years, MIF do that very well. I think it's also um, a very good industry um, series because they're always industry folk at the amazing hub. Also, people reading in queues at MIF. Yeah, this is this is a very see. Yeah, that's a, I'm I'm I find it incredible. Yeah, people that are sitting there reading, waiting for the movie in Acme. This this is like a very Melbourne thing, and and also also a Melbourne thing about people wearing hats indoors. But that's a different. Uh, I, I, do, I do it to cover my receding hairline, but that's just that's completely different. I do because I like my hat. <laughs> no, but but uh, getting back to reading and stuff because that that's a very Melbourne thing. People carrying tote bags and like doing reading, generally not ironically that people do in Sydney, where people in Sydney would just pick up a book only to look like they're reading, but they'll never turn the page. Hey, I I I read that book. I promise. I, I don't, look, Glad, you, you are an amazing, extraordinary jewel in the crown, in the near the Nadir in Sydney's, uh, whatever, you know, dirty cesspool. So, so kind. It's very kind. I, I will defend Sydney slightly. I still like it there. But yes, Miff is very incredible. We've had an amazing time. Yeah, Sydney is, I think, a beautiful city that's been way too corporatized. Just comparing the film festivals, you even see that. You know, as a friend of mine pointed out, whenever you go to the hub, you're confronted with a car, a huge Lexus ad. You know, MIF has many sponsors, but they're not, they never go as blatant as that in shoving that aspect down your throat. You go to the lounge there and there's no, here's our premium sponsors area. Just the corporate feeling of Sydney has infected even the film festivals. But there's an interesting, except the, the corporate alcohol here is Grey Goose Vodka and in Sydney it's gin and I don't drink either of those things. It's very frustrating. But what I do find interesting about MIF is there's the members passes for which gets you premium access to entry to the cinema and this or that, which we don't have to the same extent in Sydney. Yeah, because the, the max you get is what, like 30, 30 tickets in a flexi pass or something? Yeah, but yeah, so they get a, you, the the Myth Festival passport, which I was honestly really considering this year. But like, I had, you have to be a Myth member to get that. So it's like three hundred and seventy dollars for Virat has one, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. So I got myself a membership this year and a passport. They call it a passport, literally. I don't know, but because it allows you access to everything. It's like every film is a different country, so it's a passport. So it's a nice concept. 
I've, I've traveled to quite a few places. I've been to Poland. I've been to Iceland. I've been to Australia. Uh, I've been to wherever Bodied was, whatever other world place that happened in. Oh, I think it was, Calif- it was. It was actually New York. You, you guys probably went inside the mind of some uh, whatever Diamento, Diamento was. Yeah. Um, we Portuguese uh, football idiot. <laughs> and Eurovision winners. But but also like uh, it's it's totally worth the money. Like it, it sort of takes the hassle out of trying to schedule because you can then swap tickets as you want. There's no extra exchange fees on the passport, and you can just add sessions and then swap it around. Like I'm seeing fifty plus movies, and it just feels like I can still add more. So it's amazing. <laughs> Um, yeah, I want to thank everyone for doing our special MIF coverage. It's such a fun festival, and I really do enjoy coming down and seeing Melbourne and seeing trams and seeing Celine Dion. I'm so excited. Basically, what we're saying is if all of us suddenly, by next episode, decide to move to Melbourne and we're just now based here, don't be surprised. We are coming back. This thing, we have beaches in Sydney and uh, the Central Park, which is really nice. Can I quickly ask? It's on the podcast, so it's all good if we go a little bit over time, yeah? Yeah, so um, what's, everyone, what's everyone else? I mean, you're going home to, like soon and you're not seeing anything else, but uh, what is everyone else looking forward to for, for Myth? What are you looking forward to, Sean? Um, well, I get to see Man Who Killed Don Quixote again tomorrow night, which I saw in Sydney and loved. So, And I don't know if I'm going to get a chance to see it again now, but it's looking a bit more hopeful that that will happen. But seeing it on a big screen, sadly in the comedy theatre, which is the worst place you can see a movie. But I don't know what's going on over there. We have a bit of a... I think we're okay. It seems... No, I, th- I think we're all right. But also on Wednesday, um, talking about, like, because we mentioned earlier, um, uh, what was it, Thoroughbreds, which has taken its sweet time to get here to Australia when in most territories it's already out on, you know, all, like, streaming and DVD and Blu-ray. Like, you were never really here. I bought the Blu-ray over from the UK, and I've watched that recently, and I, I re-watched it recently. It's an amazing. Um, but then in one of those other films that's taken its long time to get here, then it's already out on DVD and other places. Uh, First Reformed, which I'm seeing Wednesday night, and I'm really, really excited for that. I was going to say the one thing I'm really keen to see and I'm so sorry I'm missing is the new Ethan Hawke film First Reform which is getting the most ridiculously good reviews. Yes, and also the new Paul Schrader film which a lot of people are saying is the best film of his directorial career. Um, so I, I'm, that's actually my most anticipated film. I'll sadly be leaving Myth uh, before too long but uh, I'm looking forward to that and also um, the Wandering Soap Opera, the final film by Raul Ruiz which we're seeing tomorrow. That should be good. Chris, you're not doing the you're not staying for the Cageathon, man. I wish, but after Mandy, I think I, I need a break from Nicolas Cage and his weird expressions and weirder rage. Yeah, I don't know how they're going to start with Mandy, and then it's all da- not that this is bad. Yeah. They're bad Nicolas Cage films, but it, look, there are. But not that, that you would enjoy them. But it's downhill in terms of the Cage factor from there. Mandy is a movie that seems built around the legend of Nicolas Cage and his appearance in several YouTube videos. Um, so. I, you know, putting that movie at the start seems like a mistake. That's the movie that should finish off anyone who still has a tolerance for Nicolas Cage after 12 hours. It, it should be the carrot at the end of the stick, I think, yeah. I have no idea how people are going to watch Con Air at 7am on a Saturday morning. God <laughs> God help them. I, I'm not doing the Cage song, thankfully, but I'm looking forward to the new Hong Sang-soo, Grass, which is playing next week, which I'm really excited for. I love Hong Sang-soo. I still feel he makes the same movie in different templates, but I still enjoy every movie he makes. So there's something mysterious about it. I'm still trying to decode why I like the same movie that he makes in different ways. But I think it just works for me, and I love his sake-filled love sort of dictates that his characters have. They get drunk on sake and then talk about love. Soju. Amazing. Soju. Soju, Soju sorry. Yeah. Sorry, Soju, not sake. Mixed up my cultures. Oh, my God. Kill me now. Like and, like and bodied. <laughs> 
Oh dear, we had a very politically incorrect, oh dear. Uh, also looking forward to Osaka 1 plus 2 after Chris seeing it, and also Angels Way White, so I'm catching that on the last weekend, very excited for it. And also the Indian Film Festival in Melbourne is starting, which is going side by side simultaneously with MIF. It's crazy that that can actually happen in Melbourne, so I'm, I'm, I'll be on press duty for that, so it's going to be exciting, it's going to be lovely. I'm really excited because I still have a week and a half in Melbourne to go. So I'm not leaving in time with Sydney. Sydney, see you later, or maybe never. Well, I will. We will see you all soon. I'll be off to Celine Dion and Sean. I want to say, look, it's been so much fun being a Melbourne buddy, and you'll be up in Sydney. We'll be down here. But look, everyone, check out the podcast, another bloody movie podcast. It's not just another bloody movie podcast. It's Sean's movie podcast as well as his writings of movie babble, dude. Uh, dude, thanks for coming on. It's been great. And also, anyone listening, come to MIF. Yeah, definitely come to MIF. Uh, if you see me, uh, yeah, definitely say g'day. Yeah, he, and he's the Geelong supporter. Watch out yeah, for him. That, another reason why Melbourne's better, AFL. Uh, no, that's absolutely not true, though. GWS did beat Carlton 121-48 the other day, and that was spectacular. But obviously, uh, Rugby Union is where it's at. Uh, have a wonderful night. Enjoy movies. And good night from Melbourne.